1: Hello and welcome to Lorewatch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore in some of our favorite video games. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my stupendous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt?
0: I grow ever more consistent.
1: As do we all. So today we're going to be answering some of your questions. We had a few come in, and I thought it would be nice to take a break from everything else that we were doing and, and kind of spend some time answering questions that you, our listeners, are asking of us uh, if you do have questions for this podcast, the Blizzard Watch podcast, or the Tavern Watch podcast, be sure to send those in to podcast at blizzardwatch.com. Uh, if you don't want to send the email and you want to toss us a uh, message on Discord, we do have two channels set aside, one for Patreon supporters which is Patreon, Q, and podcast questions. And then we do have one for non-Patreon supporters, because we understand not everybody can support us. Uh, but we still want to get your questions anyway, and that is just our Q and podcast questions section. Um, and you can go ahead and send those to us. Just specify what show it's for, and uh, we'll go from there. So without further ado, this first one comes from uh, Lay L-A-E. I hope I'm saying that properly. Uh, I have an ongoing fanfiction in my head about three friends growing up on Argus. One of them, Adrenai, leaving with Velen on the Exodar. Uh, second one leaving with the Lightforged ship, uh, which you can't remember the name of. Genadar. Thank you. And becoming a Lightforged Janai, and one being stuck on Argus and becoming a Minari Eridar. Skip forward 10,000 years. The Janai and the Lightforged reconnect, Sargeras is defeated, and they run into the Eridar. Can they rekindle their friendships? We know our, d- our Janai's and Lightforged, uh, Lightforged story, but what about the Eridar? When I read Rise of the Horde, I got the impression that Velen, Archimon, and Kil'jaeden had to opt in to become demons, but that their people didn't necessarily have a choice. So how does this happen? Is it by choice, by drinking green juice, general exposure to the Fell, being forced into it by mind control, radicalization, and would it be possible to regain free will? How would the questline to bring the Eridar in as an allied race be? Uh, and thanks for the podcast, uh... They've been listening since the original show from Wow Insider, and yes, we all miss Anne, and I'm glad that you enjoyed hearing her on the show again. So, Matt, you uh, you seem to have a soft spot for our, our blueberryish friends, the Drenai. So, what did you think? Would there be any chance of friends?
0: No, no, they're all. It's like it's like saying, how do I get my friend who is simultaneously a Nazi, a serial killer, and a you know ultimate violator of everybody he comes into contact with? How do I make that dude be good again? That dude made a whole bunch of choices because that's the thing. If people didn't want what Sargeras was offering, they had a way off the planet. Velen and then, the Naru offered it. Now, did everybody who wanted to get off, get off? No, many of them were trapped there. They're dead or they sold out. And it isn't a case of, I mean, you, you can always say, you know, sure. If, if your choices are death or going along with it, obviously I'm going to go along with it, but they've been going along with it for 25,000 years. They have wiped out innumerable planets. They have been killed off or enslaved whole populations. There comes a point where you got to say, you know, you didn't get off the train here, man. If Lothraxian could, and granted, maybe he didn't. We don't know yet. There's some possibility that Lothraxian's a traitor. There's also some possibility that Lothraxian is sincere in his conversion and his people are just too arrogant to understand that. Um, But either way, the Eridar that you meet, the, the Eridar now, the Manari Eridar, are by and large people who have been picking the side of, you know, puppy kicking evil for twenty-five thousand years. Your friend is a monster the, who has wiped out whole worlds.
1: And it's not just them, right? Like you got the thing to consider here as well is that the uh Manari are essentially like the leaders. They're considered a powerful leadership position Mm -hmm. within the Burning Legion, right? They're not just grunts. They're not just conscripted.
0: If you want rank and file that might be descended from the original Eridar, you're looking at Wrathguards. You're looking at guys like that. Those are the ones who weren't up for the task of manipulating and controlling and using fell magic. Those guys got turned into grunts those guys don't even have their intellect left anymore. Those guys are engines of destruction. If you want something smashed flat, you call in the Wrathguards. Um, those guys are also originally Eridar, but they're not Eridar anymore. There's nothing... If your friend turned into one of them, there's nothing upstairs left to save. And if your friend is one of the Manari Eridar, one of the people who is essentially the lieutenants and, and strategizers, and you know they're not... It, it It's... You got to a certain point where the only possible approachment is saying, well, you know, we, we understand what happened to you and we'll miss you. And now here's your firing squad because you, you participated in mass genocide on an interplanetary scale. You wiped out whole worlds. There is no going back. Uh, I, I I just... I could s- not see that. I do not see the only way you could bring the Aradar in as an allied race is to just straight up admit they're monsters. And, you know, it's your, your, your faction is willing to, to work with monsters. That's, I don't think even the horde wants these guys. Yeah. I don't because, think the horde would know, take
1: them either. Really.
0: For, for one thing though, the orcs have a lot of really good examples of why you don't trust them. Like every time we've dealt with an Aradar, it has not been good for us. You know, it, it is, I just know. I I do not see a way forward on that. You can't restart your friendship with your friend who, after high school, decided to go into the planet-killing business. Yeah,
1: like, one of the greatest examples I can really think to point out about this if you really want to see sort of, like, the the depths of, of removal from who they were and sort of the choices that they made up to this point, look at the interaction between Velen and his son, right? His son was a willing participant. He wasn't you know, some tortured soul that was being, like, forced into it, he made a choice. And in that moment, there was no reconciliation. There was, we had to fight him. We had to end him. Velen didn't want that to happen. Velen didn't want his son to die because it was still his son. But there was no his son having a change of heart. There was no, oh my god, I'm going to kill my father, there was none of that. It was legitimately, this is my job, I'm going to do it, this is the choice I've made, and looking at his dad, you're a traitor of our people, you abandoned us, you led half of our race astray, or a third of our race, or whatever, whatever small portion of it astray. Less
0: a third, but yeah.
1: Yeah, you, you actively work against the the your people who are trying to fix the universe, because that's the other side of it too, right? Like, yeah, Jaden and Archimond bought into Sargeras is we need to fix the universe thing, or at least we assume they did in some level. It could just also be a play for power,
0: but yeah, but I think you got to look at it this way. One of the things to jump off what you've been saying, when Sargeras came to them, he offered them the ability, you know, I will share with you all that I have Mm -hmm. my, my cosmic power, my understanding of the cosmos, everything that you've always hungered for as a people, knowledge, knowledge, power, wisdom. I will give you all of it. And he didn't lie. No, not at all. He gave it to him. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. He made a bargain with, with them. And, you know, on behalf of their people, Archimond and Kiljaden accepted it, but they were not alone in that decision. They were not unsupported. The people of, of Argus, it it sounded exactly like what they'd always wanted. And they were like, okay, yeah, all the knowledge, all the power, all the wisdom that we've ever wanted, this, and this being is willing to share it with us, his vast cosmic understanding, okay, what, I don't see a downside. And it wasn't... Velen was the only one who actually could see the downside because he was the one who actually saw the form that it would take. He saw, you know, the future of their people. But they didn't see that. And when he to- when he and his followers broke and ran... They were seen as traitors to their people, as Joe just pointed out. And the the Eridar who we've got now, after 25,000 years of this, they have fully bought into Sargaris's message. They are they are there for it. Let's
1: take it another step further, too, right? Let's let's take it from the aspect of something that we've talked about a lot here on the show, and particularly something Matt's talked about a lot, is the idea that the light not can't necessarily be trusted. It we don't know enough about it, right? So here you have Velen, who is gifted this the he has this gift of prophecy and is aided by the Light, and now rejects the offer of Sargeras and leads his people into the cosmos to find a new home. Now let's take a how secretive the Light is. Does the Light tell you everything? Has the Light ever been forthcoming with all of the information that it could possibly give you, knowing as much as it does? I mean, taking it a, a step more recently, even with the stuff that was happening with the Army of Light, the the Lightbound Draenei Ar- or the Lightforge Draenei, all of that stuff, and dealing with uh, why can't I think of her name now? the the Naru, um, the one that Which tried, one? the one that tried to reshape uh, Illidan.
0: See, since you said that, I don't know now.
1: <laughs> um, I want
0: to say Yrel, but it wasn't Yurel. Was like Zera,
1: Zera, Zera. Did Zera say flat out, like, I'm going to remold you and give the option? No, she just went ahead and did what she thought was going to be necessary. The light is not as forthcoming as even necessarily the void is. The light is a little bit secret. So now you have Sargeras, who kept his word, gave ultimate knowledge to the the Aradar, let them have the secrets of the universe that he had available to them, put them in a position of power where... Now they have all of the the forces that they could ever want to do anything that they ever need to do and are placed in a position of reverence because, again, the next two highest on the food chain in the order of the the Legion are Eridar or Minari now. So why are they going to take the word of somebody who serves, or at least in their mind serves a master that won't be forthcoming, that isn't honest, that keeps things from you, that keeps you you know, in the quote-unquote dark uh, for your own benefit. They don't see it like that. These are these are beings that were highly, like, a wizard society, right? Knowledge is, is prime. Learning how to deal with arcane energies is prime. And now they're being given the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. Why would they go back? Why would they relent on that? And then now at this point, as Matt pointed out, have sort of been drinking the kool-aid for you know x number of years twenty five thousand years the ones that are still there it's not by brainwashing it's not by forced uh being pressed into service because at the end of the day sargeras knows that the ones that he needs to have trusted in his lieutenancies and trusted to lead his people you can't have those be people that you brainwashed or forced brainwashing breaks people can have a change of heart you need people that are fanatical to your cause or, or creatures that are fanatical to your cause to keep the other ones that do rebel or would chafe against their their restraints in check. Think about it. Those demons. Do you think they they really want to serve Sargeras? Do you think that they want to do every little bit of his bidding? We've seen so many self styled warlords and, and like trying to carve out their own positions of power while still within the Legion. Why would you want that from people you're putting in charge of things? So, yeah, I don't think there's any coming back from it. That said, to go back to the original meat of, I think, the question here, if this is something you have in your, your head where you're writing a story about this or you're thinking about it, it does contain in and of itself that essence the ability to have a very emotionally driven story. There's Maybe it's the hope of those two folks, the Lightforged and the, the regular Janai friends that go searching for their friend, and then have to come to the heartbreaking realization that their friend's just gone. It's not their friend anymore. It's not the person, or maybe it was, maybe it's the same person that they were always were. And they just didn't want to see it. You could do a that lot matter.
0: That. Yeah. You could, you could also write a story about the fact that the person is still there. And that worst, that's the worst realization that someone you love and someone who loves you can be a monster because there's a, an old saying, uh, I think, uh, I can't remember the name of the writer who wrote it in Ms. Marvel, but it's a really good line. Uh, G. Willow Wood, I can't remember her name. I'm really sorry about this. If you're the writer of Ms. Marvel who wrote this line, I, I should remember your name and I'll go look it up. I think it's G. Willow Wilson. Is that her name?
1: Possibly. I believe so.
0: But at any rate, uh, she, she has someone. She says, good is not a thing you are. Good is a thing you do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think of it this way. Evil is a verb. It's not a question of who you are inside. Who you are inside does not matter. Because we will never actually experience who you are inside. We experience what you do. And if your friend has spent twenty-five thousand years murdering his way across the cosmos, it doesn't matter that you know he's kind to his friends, and you know that one time where you were all running around the place that we no longer call Macari, um, you know, getting into hijinks. You know that stuff happened. Mm-hmm. You know, your friend was your friend then but you are not the same person you were then, you know, even in our brief mortal lives, you're not who you were when you were 10 and you're not who you were when you were 20. When you start hitting 50, you will look back on your life. And while you are in one way, the same person in another very real way, you are not the ship of Theseus isn't just about boats. Mm -hmm. Every part of your life changes you, you leave things behind, you gain new things. And, and that's, that's possible too. And you know, Who's to say that maybe one Eredar couldn't
1: have some kind of epiphany and regret?
0: Yeah. yeah, it's possible. If that's if you if that's the story you want to tell, go for it. In terms of an of a quest to make them an allied race, though, I don't think you could really. I I have a hard time imagining a bunch of Eredar all deciding, "Oops, you know, we were wrong with that whole 20, 25,000 years." It might be kind of cool if there's a group of Eredar who were actually acting as spies the whole time and reporting to the army of the light and knowing that they were probably going to get killed for it well before. And then worst part, since they're Monterey Eridar, they might get reincarnated in, in Antorus. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's, Oh my God. We never thought about that.
1: Well, let's go for it. Go for it. Okay. I like this. I like, let's pull on that thread. I like this train of thought. Go.
0: The Eridar are not natively demons. No, they're not. What if the reason we had Antorus was to give the Eridar that ability?
1: Because we know the demons, demons that exist,
0: demons could re- demons that are from the Twisting Nether could reform, and um, we know that the the Nathraism aren't afraid of death because they're literally from the Shadowlands. So yeah, they just get sent back by Denarius if if they died. But the the Eridar don't have that ability natively. They're they're just the original Eridar are just like the Draenei. Really, they're they're just mortal beings. So he had to give it to them
1: in the same way that the light Forged had to be reforged, so that they could no longer be truly one hundred percent.
0: Yeah, he Sargeras had to give them that. That was one of the things he gave them. And how did he give it to them? Well, he's a he's a titan. They made, build things.
1: He made a titan facility that was specifically for that,
0: or repurposed one or that repurposed was already there. one that was already there. Yeah, yeah. But he it it that's why Antorus. This whole time we've thought Antorus was for the entire legion. But no, because we know that he had to create a prison planet inside the fell to contain demons that he didn't, that he couldn't kill. So, yeah, ooh, ooh, that's a thing. So you definitely don't want to get caught because you'll die, you'll be drawn to Antoris. you'll be forcibly resurrected, and then you'll be tortured.
1: And possibly, possibly through their own form of free education for your failure, not not to make you more compliant, but to make you try to fail less, because that makes sense in demon minds, because why not? That could be very interesting as well. And that does, because yeah. we've, we've been sitting here and we've been thinking that Antorus was for the demons, but, well, it wasn't there before. It didn't exist when demons were the first problem that needed to be solved and a special prison had to be made to contain them so that they didn't reform. So, yeah, I, I can't believe we've never thought about that before. This, yeah, that's it fantastic.
0: Just, it, it makes sense. That's the reason that Antoras exists, is for beings like Jaden and Archimond. It's for yep. an Eridar to be able to come back, because Eridar are not natively demons.
1: Or or other, other creatures or entities that decide to join the Legion or press into service. Uh, anything
0: else that gets pushed into service in the Legion, things that aren't like fel- pit lords or mm-hmm. what have you. Yeah, yeah.
1: This is the makings of like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. This is the makings of a really interesting like spy esque story involving these uh the these particular points. And I would 100% read this fiction if it was written. Not gonna lie.
0: Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> there's there's an idea. There's you an angle like for you. that one.
1: But I think that's good. I think we're gonna move on to our next one though. So hopefully, Lay that that answers your questions and gives you a little bit of a direction to go in. Uh, our next one comes from Adele. Uh, question up for some wild speculation wherever appropriate. Well, I'm going to deem it appropriate here. What do you think is Venari's plan in the end? Where will she they end up? Going to be a raid boss? Or is Venari just previously unknown first one secret identity? Or did Venari make Zoval very mad at some point trying to steal something? Or did Zoval get got conned by Venari? What else? Um Venari is a wild card.
0: Well, plus she's going to set fire to the rain. <laughs>
1: Uh oh, I I hate that I laughed at that.
0: But That's like every joke I tell.
1: <laughs> the problem with the brokers is that they are sort of a wild card. We we don't know a whole lot about them even after going to uh Tazavesh, right? We know that they have certain capabilities, that they can open portals to the physical world, that they not necessarily restricted or restrained specifically to the Shadowlands. They have the ability to travel between different realms of the Shadowlands without the use of any of the first one's gates because they either have their barges that they can use, which we did see an entire shipyard full of them, but they also can open portals that very clearly can transport them from different points because we do this. If you spend any time in Bastion, there's a market area-ish, like a menagerie area, up in the, I want to say the northwest-ish region, where there are a bunch of brokers, and they are capturing creatures and one of the daily things that you can do or one of the quests that you can do when you get there is go help them capture things and then send it to and i think it's back to oribos and if you go into oribos and look at the area where they're in there's tons of those things in mechanic in little anima cages or whatever they're made out of and they're all over the place they're creatures from the shadowlands they're creatures from azeroth they're creatures from origins that we don't know yet so how are they capable of doing that what what does that signify Does that mean that they weren't created by the First Ones? Does that mean that they have a tie to the First Ones that we don't know yet? They seem incredibly interested in First Ones' information. And as a matter of fact, that's kind of what Venari is is looking for, but so are the other cartels. But why? We don't know. Are they looking for more power? Are they looking for more uh, clout? What exactly are they brokering? We know that they have tons of anima because they give you tons of anima for bringing them stuff but Venari is a wild card even considering them she has the ability to cloak from Zoval which is fascinating and canonically now that in the mall, when you're there you're constantly under the because the eye of the jailer is no more there's a whole cloak of Venari thing where you are shielded by the sight of the from the sight of the jailer so we know that she can or they can keep you from being detected from Zoval from the Dude, Eye of didn't, Odin? Didn't,
0: didn't you once propose that they were machines? I did. Because I'm thinking here, if we assume that the Shadowlands were created by the first ones to repurpose Anima for some reason, mm-hmm. uh, to direct it in a specific way, then Zaval obviously decided he did not want to be part of that machinery anymore and tried to do something to it. He was grabbed by the others, stripped of the part of him that made the the uh, made him the... Arbiter and, and sentenced to the maw, and they literally created the arbiter as a machine out of the, the part of him that they took away from him.
1: Which we know the first ones were doing because there are first one guardians that are ostensibly machines. We fight one, we yeah, literally fight one.
0: Think about this. This means that Zoval himself was effectively a part of the machinery. Mm hmm much like the Titans are essentially, you know, they create vast Titan complexes with Titan forged in them. As above, so below. Perhaps the first ones do this with beings on par with the Titans. And then that makes me think, so all treated Odin like an equal to be bargained with. Yep. So what if the brokers are all malfunctioning as a race, as a society, they're kind of like we had the Tol'vir who decided they weren't going to do, what they were supposed to do or, or the Mogu who did much the same thing, the brokers could be similar and Venari could be using protocols that were built into the system. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if, if Arbiter unit fails, go to, you know, fail safe junction one and, and do this to try and restore functionality to, to the device. And that could be what she's doing, or it could be, she's trying to take advantage of it because she's even more off, tr- off track than the others but she's using ancient protocols to do it. A lot of the thing we don't know is what the heck he is talking about. Yeah. Like Zaval's going, going quote unquote to the sepulchre of the first ones. What is the sepulchre of the first ones?
1: We know that the word means tomb of some type.
0: Yeah. But does like, are they dead? If the first ones are dead, why are they dead? Is Is the Shadowlands there to collect anima for the purposes of resurrecting the first ones? So
1: here's a, here's a, building off of what you just said, I had this random thought a while ago too, when we were talking specifically about sort of the collection state and kind of going back to the whole Emerald dream thing to begin with, we talked about the Emerald dream was sort of like the save point for Azeroth. And we've been told that for years, we have no reason to believe that it's not true to a certain extent. But one of the things it seems like it's aimed at is a form of preservation. Nothing in the Shadowlands really seems like preservation. It's all using what it's taking in. The anima gets used. The anima gets taken. It gets used again. And whether it's being used to sustain the life that's there or create new life, it is a system that sort of has this equilibrium, or I would imagine it's supposed to have a point of equilibrium of in and out. Right? It should, if a perfect system is perfect, it loses or gains nothing. It stays static. That's the definition of a perfect system. With the machinery of death, quote unquote, being broken and now somewhat being fixed, we're starting to kind of see some of that normalization. With the anima drought over and no longer being, you know, funneled 100% in there because we as heroes have quasi fixed it, we've put duct tape around the leak, so to speak. The realms are starting to normalize a little bit and we're starting to see sort of that 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 equalization. But what if the brokers are part of a preservation protocol for the Shadowlands? And maybe not necessarily for the Shadowlands. Going back to what you're saying, maybe they were like, maybe the idea that I had that they were robots is accurate. But maybe their programming is not just to, you know, follow a certain set of protocols, but literally to preserve instances of everything in the universe. Giant archivists. They seem really close to the attendants as far as, like, form. But what if their function is literally gathering just basically whatever they can get their grubby little anima mitts on to preserve it so that there's a copy of it or there's knowledge of it? And that's what it was supposed to be. What if that's why they were looking for... When you go to Tazavesh, I can't remember the, the one that's there that you're going after, but it's the head of the cartels. And they're trying to mess with an artifact, essentially, on the level of a Titan artifact, a first one's artifact. That opens up a gateway, a fractal gateway, very similar to the one that Zovall walks through. What if that was their directive was to get it and put everything into that chamber? What if that's what the sepulchre is and why they want to go find it? Because that's their programming. And that's where they shoved every instance of uh, creature knowledge or whatever that they could get their hands on. And the fact that they're broken isn't necessarily because they're broken, but they're operating out of spec because they can't put it back they can't actually complete their programming and so they have nowhere to put this stuff so then they could fall back into this loop of use stuff to acquire more stuff what if that's what's going on what if that's really what the sepulchre is it's not necessarily the tomb of the old ones but it's just like the repository of the collective information of the universe that has been preserved at the behest of the first one's robot servants whose entire job is to archive what do you think of that
0: i mean it's certainly one possibility uh Without more information, I can't say, but it would be kind of it would be kind of elegant in a way. I, d- I find myself really c- really curious about this concept that we were told that Zoval was Titan plus mm-hmm. plus, but that it's doesn't really feel mean, like it, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that he's more he's more powerful in the sense of what he's doing is a threat to the re- to reality itself. But it's a threat to reality itself because the Shadowlands are supposed to be where they are. Mm -hmm. They're not supposed to be everywhere. They're not supposed to conquer the universe. We need death is a place that needs to be. But if everything's dead, then nothing, nothing exists. The Shadowlands can't exist without anima coming to them,
1: which is why it feeds it back into the If if everything,
0: if everything is dead, nothing will die. And if nothing dies, no anima comes to the Shadowlands. The Shadowlands depends on life. In a very real sense, death needs things to, to die, like, in order for there to be a realm of death, things have to keep dying. And that's why there's an escape hatch in the Shadowlands. That's why souls can get out and go back. That's why you have Ardenweald, where from from Ardenweald, souls can be returned to life.
1: Yeah, there's a direct path to the Prime Material Plane, for lack of a better term.
0: Yeah, or possibly to whatever plane in the Emerald Dream it's related to.
1: Mm-hmm. In the I case mean, of the Wild Gods.
0: Yeah, it, it's... It's interesting to me to think about the idea of, like, you've got the the brokers, whatever their original function was, whether it was to store things, as you've indicated. Uh, I mean, they've got a banking system, so clearly they know about storage. Um, or if it was to, like, keep keep everything running smoothly or what have you. There's this... The Shadowlands the as presented to us does not make sense. Agreed. But the idea behind it does. The idea that it exists basically... It is, it is ultimately a very complex place where all the, you know, where all these, like, where beings can go and continue in some fashion. Like you die, but you still continue. And we were once told the Emerald Dream was like a backup copy of Azeroth. And since we we now know that Ardenweald and the Emerald Dream are linked in some way, what if that's basically like the Shadowlands are the iter- iterative process. If you die, you go to the Shadowlands, everything that isn't, essential to what you are is in one way or another removed from you depending on the version of the shadowlands you go to if you go to like bastion you're like your memories were removed and now they're like okay that's not so great we're going to leave make that a choice but think about it every one of the shadowlands removes something from you yeah it it tries to pare you down in in the words of Michelangelo I te- you know I take the chisel and I remove everything that's not the statue they're they're trying to find a way to take the chisel and remove everything that isn't the best thing to send back. You know, ultimately, it's just another reformation process. It's, it's. We keep getting told that the, you know, the universe, like the, the Titans, come to a world and experiment on it. The entire cosmos could be an experiment. Like, what if the first ones were actually doing that on that scale, the scale of reality itself? They were attempting to iterate on existence. Well existence as we have it now has this problem with these old god things keep invading it and this light and void war and this fell stuff how do we get rid of that how do we purify this how do we get a better cosmos sargeras's idea was just to destroy everything but if you just destroy everything then you have to redesign everything Mm -hmm. if you go through a purification process if you go through and say okay what were our mistakes with this one okay well it, it clearly didn't care enough about x So we'll put it through this place that will make it care more about that. Okay. All right. That makes sense. What about this? This one, this one cared too much about itself. So we'll put it in a place where it will has to release. it has to like, in order to progress, it has to release some of itself, you know, and you have the people that stay in the shadowlands and supposedly protect the shadowlands. You have so, and they, of course, that's a vital purpose because the shadowlands need to keep going for this iterative process. You've got like places like Revendreth where you, At the end of the Revendreth process, you were supposed to be offered a choice. Mm -hmm. You could stay in Revendreth and become one of the Venthyr, or you could leave. Where do you go if you leave? Do you eventually end up in Ardenweald? Do you actually go home? Does the purified version of you eventually get to go back to the world of living and be somebody else? I don't know the answer to that question, but it is something to think about. All of this comes down to the fact that we don't really know what this whole thing is for. Yeah. But it's interesting to think about the possibilities of what it might be for. I definitely think the Venari I don't think the Venari is necessarily working for the true purpose of the Shalians. I think Venari has stumbled upon some stuff that tells her, Oh, this is all messed up. And being a broker, she wanted to use it for her own advantage. But what is her advantage? What does she see as her advantage? And
1: why do clearly, the other brokers why do the other brokers want to stop her?
0: Well, the other brokers are clearly taking like, you know, jobs from Denathrius and thus thus from Zoval. Like, we we saw them in Castle Nathria. Yeah. We know that they're at the same time they're taking jobs from them, they're also trying to steal from them. They were, He was trying to break into Denathria's secret vaults. So the brokers are playing their own game here. I think that Venari has kind of, is has like, you no, know, whatever you're doing is too much X, I'm going to do Y instead. And that's a threat to their plan. But we'll, we'll see what, when we ultimately get there. But I definitely think that Venari is... Operating on some kind of contingency that nobody was expecting her to be using.
1: Yeah, and there's definitely some level of importance there, especially with like the recent campaign in Corthia, where at one point Venari said flat out presents themselves and says, We should talk to the, the now the archivist, right? So, or whoever it is that's in charge of Corthia, there. I can't remember their exact title, but there's going to be some interesting revelations with the brokers, I think, coming up relatively soon. I would be very surprised if there wasn't. Um, but I think we can move on to the next one. Unless there's anything else you want uh, to add to that? No, I think we're okay. Okay. Our next question comes from our good friend, Vertigree uh, question for any podcast. Well, I took it for here. So haha. ha Exiles Reach reaches a shaman. You drink a potion to help you see the spirits around you. And there are like 50 all standing around you silently watching and turning to face you. What is your favorite example of environmental atmospheric storytelling in wow or anything else? So, recently, I've been going back and just doing some runs through some of the older content, and I'm starting to really appreciate the level of environmental storytelling that was present in the game from the very, very beginning. Now, it wasn't perfect in Vanilla WoW, but there was still a good chunk of it, mostly because you couldn't have a thousand cutscenes at the time to explain everything. So it had to rely on visual cues in the world to sort of give you your, your place and sort of put you in the mindset and immerse you into what was going on. I actually think that for my money, if I had to put anything that says, like in, at least in terms of Blizzard games, the best environmental storytelling, I actually think I'm going to go with Burning Crusade. And the reason I say that is because there's a lot of little tiny touches that I think players might miss nowadays that were kind of big deals. So when we talked last week about, like, Gruul's Lair and who Gruul was and the fight with the Black Dragon flight, go to Blade's Edge Mountain and fly around, because you can fly now, and just take a look. And you can still see Black Dragons impaled on the spikes of Blade's Edge Mountain. Go through the various graveyards throughout all of Outland, and they're all unique and weird and strange and different for, like in a way that I don't think has really been done elsewhere. Most graveyards are kind of, eh, samey. But again, again, in Blade's Edge Mountain, I stumbled across that, uh, rediscovered that that outpost. There's an elven outpost that's neutral, and it's a grove, essentially, in the middle of Blade's Edge. Go look at what stands around the perimeter of the graveyard. They're carved glowing idols that look like they're just made out of screaming faces. Why? But it lends to sort of this eerie otherworldness that is happening all around you. Go to Netherstorm and wander around and look at the barren alien landscape. Go to uh, the very first one. I don't know why I'm blanking on zones now, but go to the very first one that we walk into Hellfire Peninsula. Walk down the main path. Look at your feet. It's the path of glory. One that was comprised by millions and millions of bones. Look down at the texture. It's there. It's one of those things where, like, if you're not looking for it, it's easy to miss. But I think Bernie Crusade did a fantastic job of just all these little tiny out-of-the-way places, like little dark altars. There's a pit fiend body in Hellfire Peninsula that's been draining, and its blood is corrupting everything around it. And you don't need to have a quest or a cinematic to tell you what's going on. It's the same thing with, like, going to Fellwood. Fellwood does a great job of showing you the level of corruption and darkness that exudes from that area and what happened there. And that is some great environmental storytelling. What about you, Matt?
0: I like pie. <laughs> no. Um I was I was thinking about it as Joe was talking. And I was thinking like, you know, a lot of the stuff he was he was listing is is pretty big scale environmental storytelling. So, there's a lot of these things that I I I keep thinking of But the one I'm going to talk about is inns in Pandaria because they are perfect little microcosms of the Pandaren way of life. Mm. When you go into them, they don't have any walls. There's the, the cooking area kind of like a bar around it, the, the innkeeper. And you can just, you go in and you see them eating on those little tables and it just immediately shows you, this is how they live their lives. This is how they view Communal dining. They they view eating as a as a social thing. You don't just eat by yourself. You don't they you. They talk a lot about how the Pandaren like food and like eating, but they like eating, but it's social. Yeah, it's they like, aren't going it's big off event. to gorge. Yeah. They don't go off to gorge themselves by themselves. They eat together. It's it's a way to spend time together. Uh, anyone who's got like a family meal understands the basic concept. And it's just that, but it's like the whole area. They will like, you know, a whole town will get together, go to Pandaren towns and look at the way they're laid out. They've got the little, like the houses all kind of face a central point. And sometimes the town will have another arm that goes off. And then that area is like, it's not where people live. It's where like, okay, this is, we've got like a road out of town here. There's some kind of like milling area over here. It's where stuff is done. They have a place where, where they, you know, crafting happens and a place where people live and the living areas are almost always circles around an area. It's just one of those things that really gets me is tell me the name of the major city in Pandaria.
1: Yeah. I don't think there, there really isn't is one. one.
0: The closest you get are the shrines. And those which are, are shrines. Built, yeah. The shrines are built around a Mogu palace. The Mogu build ma- built massive areas and those areas weren't even actually built by the Mogu or if they were, they were built by the Mogu. On orders of the of you know Noroshen or Ra, Master Ra, they they're not originally Mogu temples. They're originally Titan constructions. The Pandaren, when they defeated the Mogu and drove them out of power, didn't replicate their style of building. the The wall that that divides you know the the areas from the areas the Pandaren currently live. Was built by the Mogu. It's a Mogu construction. It's an enormous Mogu project. The, the Pandaren would have never built anything like it. They built small. They build communal. Yeah. They have villages. They have farm towns. The farm in, uh, oh bloody heck, uh, the Vale of Four Winds, Valley of the Four Winds, Valley of Is the Four Winds, yeah, Yeah. Uh, the Valley of the Four Winds area with like its farming communities. The you know the monastic settlements up in in Kunlai Summit jade forest with its small towns that's how that's how the pandaren like to live and it doesn't they don't bother to tell you this they don't have a a pandaren come out and say we pandaren prefer a pastoral life they just show you it's interesting that you bring that up because now i'm starting to remember
1: like even the villages like calling them villages is is interesting because like it's all based around communal areas even outside of like the the inns quote unquote yeah cuz like you go and find the houses they're just like sleeping areas mostly mm-hmm. everything else like even the dining room tables in a lot of places they're not dining room tables they're huge things in the center of like all of the huts like if you yeah.
0: have like one of those like if you made a meal in pandaria if you learned cooking and you made one of the big meals that feeds your whole raid group it's exactly that kind of table. It's a yeah. big round table with a lot of food on it. And that's how they do everything. They do everything like this and they don't do it. Like they don't come together in massive. Like if you want to find the Pandaren in a, in a zone, look for one of the many villages and towns. The closest thing you'll get to a really big city is like the, 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 the temples to the various uh, August Celestials.
1: Yeah, like if you go to like Kunla, Kunlai Summit and you go to the the Temple of the White Tiger, right? Like,
0: yeah, exactly.
1: That's a huge massive structure. But even then, if you go look around that, like Matt's right, there's a lot of mainly communal spaces,
0: <laughs> and that's how they live. And they and they everything is set up around that. But nobody ever tells you that. There's no. This is very much a show don't tell. Nobody ever says this is how the Pandaren live. Just your, you get to see them living that way. Uh, Compare that to Orgrimmar versus orc settlements, both in uh, Burning Crusade and Warlords of Draenor. Look at the way orcs lived before the horde, and the way they live after the horde. When they don't, it's like they don't even really remember how they used to live. So they had to build the closest approximation they could, and it still involved a giant city where nothing they did before had giant cities in it. Yeah. Go look at, like, in Warlords, the closest thing you'll see to a giant orc city is actually not an orc place at all. It's the, it's the corpse of a long-dead giant that they kind of use as a temple, and they're not even living there. This re- it, it is... Hmm? I was going to say,
1: this reminds me of something you actually wrote back in 2014. <laughs> um, you wrote a whole thing about the world as a story, and talking about emergent storytelling just in general. And you hit these points and, and it, I'm not going to like link back to it, but if you haven't read it, maybe search for it because it's, it's worth a read. Um, But you point out a lot of this stuff where it's, it's the idea of traveling through the world should inform the story of the world. And that's something we talk about a lot and we, we generally try to bring up a lot, but like, yeah, I'm, I'm going back on it. Like you bring up Pandaria and like it hits all of these marks, right? Like, it hits all of that environmental storytelling no matter where you are. But then I'm looking at it, and like Warlords, the Draenor does do the same thing. You are absolutely right. Um, yeah, the
0: Dra- you can see very clearly the difference between the Draenei and the, the Orcs, just in terms of how they each live in an area. Even if you just go to Shadowmoon, the Orcs who live in Shadowmoon that aren't your enemies live very differently than the Draenei. The Draenei have settlements that are built up. They've got like you get to one Draenei settlement and they're trying to figure out how to use ancient Draenei technology on Draenor mm-hmm. and the, and the Draenor does not like it. This stuff does not work here. It it takes the area off. Like Karabor is this enormous structure that they built and live in like a city, like a t- it's a temple, but it's also a city. That's very much the Draenei way. If you go to um, Frostfire and look at how the, the orcs are living, they don't live like that. They don't build huge areas where all of them come and converge—that's just not how they live. They live in smaller groups. Their tribes spread out. They have multiple settlements in an area. It's a different way of living, and and it's not the the Iron Horde that's rising up is changing it, and it's that's one of the big conflicts in Shadowmoon. Is for all of his problems, Nerazul did not want to get involved in this. Mm-hmm he didn't want to go live like that. He had his people had where they were living and they were perfectly happy with it. But then Grom shows up and is like, do what we want or we'll kill you. And he's like, okay, uh, I guess I'm going to have to do what they want. And that, that tore his tribe apart. His wife left him, you know, it's really, that's all part of the story that, that nobody, the, the world tells you this. You, you just look at it and see the differences. You see how the Arakoa live. Arakoa. Is that how you pronounce it?
1: Yeah, Arakoa.
0: Yeah, you see how the Arakoa live, how the ogres live. The ogres are the ones who are city builders. Yeah, amongst the people of Draenor. are the original peoples of Draenor, not the Draenor themselves. The ogres are the ones who build actual cities. Highwall is a city, mm-hmm. and you see lots of places that used to be ogre cities throughout the world.
1: Yeah, and then, like uh, the, the Ara- orcs, the orcs squat in one. Like that's part of the whole thing of Frostfire Ridge, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, but like they didn't build it. it wasn't no. it wasn't theirs. And even the, even the the area around it, it's all huge structures. Even the the normal houses, like at the base of it that you clear out of ogres, they're huge stone structures. They're not yeah. little tiny little huts.
0: Yeah. When when the when the orcs build their own settlements, they're they're modest. When the orcs take over a settlement, it's usually an ogre settlement, and it's usually massive. The Arakoa stru- structures are far more advanced, and this is all just in the design and building of the places. So going, I always go back to that Mr. Pandaria thing where you've like first walk into it, like the first village you get into is hoarder Alliance and you see these little houses and you go into that one inn, and you just, this is how they live. And this Mm -hmm. informs everything that you do with them and everything they do with you. When you're like, we got to do this. And they're like, why? That doesn't make any sense. Why would we do that? That's, that sounds like a lot of work. Like, it's not that they're, they're not incapable of working hard, it's like they don't see the point. Their society has been the way it's been for thousands of years. They don't understand why they should do the thing you want them to do. And half the time, it turns out they shouldn't have done it. The Hosen and the Jinyu stuff really illustrates why the Pandaren were right, and they shouldn't have done what you wanted. There's there's a lot to the storytelling that is just in terms of it showing itself to you.
1: And I will say that I think that over the years, they've definitely gotten... They've gotten, I don't want to say better, but like it's more... It's there when you look for it, right? It's There's the big flashy cinematics. There's always going to be those big storytelling moments in any of those expansions or, or any of the quests or even the raids. But take a time sometime, and I often tell players to slow down and look around. Do so. Look for little things. Because the team that works on this stuff, they put them there intentionally. They put them there for us to find and to inform the story of the area, whether it's a steamy romance novel in a high mountain Torrens hut uh, or whether it's, you know, little tiny things with flavor text that you find around Mechagon. There's tons of little tiny things like this that help inform the story and kind of tell you more about the place than what you actually get from just questing or just paying attention to the environment or the um, the cinematics we when we start picking at things and we start picking at random theories, a lot of times we look at the environmental storytelling. I remember one of the last things we talked about with Anne was the journal that was found at the end of I want to say it was BFA.
0: No, it might have been the end of Legion. If you're end talking of Legion, about the one end with, of Legion, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But like that was a little thing that was easy to miss. Like you could kill a single mob and get this, and if you didn't kill that mob, you didn't get this, and if you didn't open it up. And read it, you never learned what was inside of it. It was just vendor trash. It was a gray item. And it had a, most add ons would just automatically dump it. But if you took the time to look at it, and I do this a lot, like if I pick up something that looks like a book or anything in my inventory, I look to see if it's readable. And sometimes it's little, little tiny things like, oh, it's, you know, pages of a journal, or maybe it's a cookbook, or maybe it's something else. But sometimes it's that, like that journal from the, The Mad Ogre, the one that is absolutely driven insane by the the whispering of old gods. And it adds so much more depth to some of those things and some of those areas and just really absolutely informs the story of his own. So,
0: but I think that's it unless there's anything else you want to add to it. They do not live. They do not die. They are outside the cycle. Okay. The cycle is Shadowlands is all about the cycle. Mm Mm-hmm. They do not live. They do not die. They are outside the cycle. The Nathrasim talk about how they they infiltrated the void, but they can't be sure if they've infiltrated it properly because the void could very well have already foreseen everything that they're doing because the void lives outside the cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: That's a really great example
0: too. I'm thinking about this and I feel like there's something just right here, but we we don't have time. We got (laughs) to go.
1: But I think that is going to do it for us today, folks. Uh, So, Without further ado, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads free site experience. Again, if you do have questions for this or any of our other podcasts, be sure to send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com or one of our various Discord channels. And also as a reminder, all of us at Blizzard Watch still stand with the employees of Activision Blizzard in demanding change for a better tomorrow and a safer work environment.